to you again. I would invite you to open up either in your paper Bible or on your device of any kind, open up to Jeremiah chapter 38 and verse 14. While you're heading there, uh, I do want to make mention of something that I forgot to make mention of last week. Uh, I also wanted to express my thanks and the thanks of my household and my family for the provision that Caring Community Church over the last five and a half years has given to us as a family down in Kentucky. Um, They have provided, you have provided um, monetary support on a monthly basis for some of our most basic needs, and I'm very, very thankful for that. And that support is um, is coming to a close now with the finishing of this first degree. And so uh, I, I want to say, with a with a with a stamp on it, since this is coming to that season is coming to a close for us, that we've been so grateful, and that without that support, we have been we we would have been um, unable to do a lot of what we were doing. So we're very grateful. And uh, I just wanted to express that to you before I forgot, because it would, I would be remiss to forget that. So, as I was saying, we're in Jeremiah, we're in chapter 38, and verse 14. Hear this word of the Lord. Then King Zedekiah sent for Jeremiah the prophet, and had him brought to the third entrance to the temple of the Lord. I'm going to ask you something, the king said to Jeremiah. Do not hide anything from me. Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, If I give you an answer, will you not kill me? Even if I did give you counsel, you would not listen to me. But King Zedekiah swore this oath secretly to Jeremiah, As surely as the Lord lives, who has given us breath, I will neither kill you nor hand you over to those who want to kill you. Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, This is what the Lord God Almighty, the God of Israel, says. If you surrender to the officers of the king of Babylon, your life will be spared, and the city will not be burned down. You and your family will live. But if you will not surrender to the officers of the king of Babylon, this city will be given into the hands of the Babylonians, and they will burn it down. You yourself will not escape from them. King Zedekiah said to Jeremiah, I am afraid of the Jews who have gone over to the Babylonians. For the Babylonians may hand me over to them, and they will mistreat me. They will not hand you over, Jeremiah replied. Obey the Lord by doing what I tell you. Then it will go well with you, and your life will be spared. But if you refuse to surrender, this is what the Lord has revealed to me. All the women left in the palace of the king of Judah will be brought out to the officials of the king of Babylon. Those women will say to you, they misled you and overcame you, those trusted friends of yours. Your feet are sunk in the mud. Your friends have deserted you. All your wives and children will be brought out to the Babylonians. You yourself will not escape from their hands, but will be captured by the king of Babylon, and this city will be burned down. Then Zedekiah said to Jeremiah, do not let anyone know about this conversation, or you may die. If the officials hear that I talked with you, And they come to you and say, tell us what you said to the king and what the king said to you. Do not hide it from us or we will kill you. Then tell them I was pleading with the king not to send me back to Jonathan's house to die there. All the officials did come to Jeremiah and question him. And he told them everything the king had ordered him to say. So they said no more to him, for no one had heard his conversation with the king. And Jeremiah remained in the courtyard of the guard 
until the day Jerusalem was captured. I read an op-ed article recently. Um, the content uh, was kind of secondary to what I'm talking about this morning. The article contained a very interesting definition of tragedy, a definition of tragedy. And this definition was the idea that in the midst of a particular crisis that someone is facing or a particular hero or character, regardless of the choice which is made, the choice will be wrong. There is no right choice. Failure is inevitable. Now, um, I found this definition interesting because as a person who's trained up, at least um, at one time anyway, I felt like I was trained up in the things of theater, I can tell you that the standard definition of a tragedy is a, is a little bit different. From what I learned, tragedy involves a character who experiences a sudden violent downturn of fortunes because of a particular tragic flaw which causes the character to bring themselves and their situation to ruin. For an audience who's watching a play that is a tragedy, tragedy is intended to create feelings of pity and fear in the audience. And by doing that, tragedy is intended to invoke an emotional cleansing for the viewer. But I want to ask you this morning, what if it were possible? I mean, imagine yourself in the shoes of the tragic hero, as I've described the tragic hero, just for a moment. What if it were possible that your impossible choice was only impossible from the viewpoint of your own mind, not in reality? And what if you weren't destined to simply produce emotional cleansing for some onlooking audience while you crash and burn, but instead the author of the play decided to bring emotional cleansing into your life. One would be silly not to accept such a gesture as this, and yet it happens all the time, unfortunately. And it happened for Zedekiah as well. So getting into the passage that we just read a moment ago, let's give it a little bit of context here. Israel as a nation was formed out in the wilderness after God had rescued them from Egypt, right? And they were formed on the basis of a covenant. Think of it as like a contract, but more so, way more so. It's, it's a sacred trust between two parties. In this case, God, who had redeemed Israel from their slavery, would be their exclusive God, and they would be his people. It was the finishing of a promise that really started centuries before that, when God promised Abraham that his many descendants would be blessed, and they'd be given the land of Canaan as their place to live. But the covenant ran into trouble. Not because of God, obviously, but because of the people. The number one command given by God... I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. First commandment, right? This was particularly difficult or maybe just inconvenient, I don't really know, for the people to follow. And so idolatry, the worship of idols alongside or in place of the one true God, it was all too common. Now, God bore very gently with his people. And though it may not seem so, especially when you read books like Numbers or Judges, consider he allowed Israel as a nation to go on for hundreds of years, hundreds of years, even as they lived at varying intensity in breach of the covenant. 
being he ought to have ousted them from the land. But because of his promise to Abraham, and later because of his promises to David, he allowed the nation and also the kingship that formed afterward to continue on. But as we've seen in the passage this morning, the nation has come under attack. The northern tribes of the nation of Israel, they fell to Assyria over a century before this. And now the last remnant, the tribe of Judah and their territory, is under siege. It'd be too easy to say that the enemy was the Babylonians. Jerusalem is about to fall because the Lord has allowed it. It is actually God who is now waging war against a rebellious people. A lot of this has to do with how kingship is viewed in ancient Israel. The king is likened to a shepherd who cares for the flock. And that shepherding involves how the king leads the people in accordance to the covenant. This is why when you read the book of Kings or Chronicles, that every king is judged by the standard of whether they did good or evil in the eyes of the Lord. The king serves as a channel of either blessing or curse upon the people based upon his leadership and conduct. As we see for Zedekiah, his decision, which we read about, carries incredible weight for the future of God's people. But things have gotten way past his leading the people into or out of idol worship. He must now make a choice which will determine the very survival of Jerusalem and the status of God's people as a nation. This is how high the stakes are for him. So Zedekiah summons Jeremiah. Let's give a little bit of history between these two because it's not just... um, It's not just this meeting that they've had. They've had a lot of previous encounters. And Jeremiah has actually been a thorn in the side of many kings up to this point. He's only, he's the only one who is prophesying that Jerusalem is actually going to be destroyed. That the nation is going to be taken away. He alone stands against this prevailing attitude in Jerusalem that God will never allow the city to fall. Because he's chosen it, right? From back in the days of Solomon, he's chosen it for his very presence to dwell among the people. And so there's a whole school of prophets who live in the city who continually prophesy falsely that all the trouble will be over soon. The Babylonians will go away. But things have started turning in favor of Jeremiah's prophecies with the coming of the Babylonians. And as the situation grows continually worse, Zedekiah starts to think that maybe, maybe he should ask Jeremiah for some help. He's asked for prophecy from Jeremiah a few times. The response from the Lord has not been good, by the way, the answers. He's asked Jeremiah to pray to the Lord for them. And the Lord has actually told Jeremiah, don't pray for these people. Zedekiah has also thrown Jeremiah in prison a few times. Um, the last time that it happened was right before this passage that we read. He had, well, I was going to say the king had Jeremiah, but actually it was his officials. His officials came and said, this guy is just tanking our morale. He's tanking the morale of the military. This guy's a downer. We want to get rid of him. And so his response is very interesting. It'll come back later. He says, do whatever you think is right. The king can't do anything to oppose you. Do whatever you want. Interesting. So they throw him into a pit, into an old cistern. And for this encounter, he's been brought out. 
by a servant who let the king know, hey, he's down in a pit. Can I go get him out? And the king says, oh, yeah, get him out, get him out. What's going on here? So the king has even held previous meetings with Jeremiah before for direct prophecy. Still, no help from the king there. All the while, Jeremiah has prophesied coming destruction, and he has has constantly criticized Zedekiah. So now there's the encounter that we've read about. Zedekiah has secretly sent one of his servants, as I was saying, to get him and to bring him so that they can meet together. And it's in the king's gate of the temple. It says the third gate in the passage. That's the king's gate. This ensures the most privacy that they can hope for. This is a secret meeting, at least concerning what's discussed. So through all this, it's possible that the king is starting to soften to Jeremiah's words, just maybe, harsh as they've been, because things are just that bad with Jerusalem and the Babylonians. Maybe he's ready to hear Jeremiah out in more detail. And Zedekiah doesn't seem to be the most fortified leader there is. And if that's the case, maybe he can be persuaded to see reason. There are two alternatives, as Jeremiah lays them out and as we read. The first one, surrender. Open up the city, let in the Babylonians. If this is done, the city will be spared from destruction. The king and his household will be spared from death. Now, as nice as that sounds, this is not an easy alternative. It's a very hard alternative. Because think of it, Zedekiah will be responsible for the fall of Jerusalem to the Babylonians. He will be the guy who let it happen. That's how he'll go down in history. And he will have to take a stand also against his officials, who seem to be pulling a lot of weight and really pulling a lot of strings and half running the show. He's going to have to stand up to them. He's going to have to risk bad treatment by the Judeans who've already defected to the Babylonians. He's afraid of them. And so this is a very honest moment from Zedekiah. Very honest. He's confessing his fears. He's revealing this point of weakness in himself. But Jeremiah makes it plain that a lifeline is being offered to him and to his city in spite of how hard a choice it will be for him to make. It will be the salvation of the city. The stakes are high. They pertain to the covenant itself, not just the city. Notice the language that Jeremiah uses in verse 20 when he says, Obey the Lord by doing what I tell you. Then it will go well with you and your life will be spared. I don't know about you, but when I think about what I think about when I read this, I think about the language of the covenant which Moses spoke to the Israelites throughout the book of Deuteronomy and is characterized probably most clearly through Deuteronomy 12:28. Be careful to obey all these regulations that I am giving you so that it may always go well for you and your children after you because you will be doing what is good and right in the eyes of the Lord your God. And if that weren't a strong enough connection, Hear this word from earlier already in the book of Jeremiah, from chapter 7, 22 to 23. For when I brought your ancestors out of Egypt and spoke to them, I did not just give them commands about burnt offerings and sacrifices, but I gave them this command. Obey me, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. Walk in obedience to all I command you, that it may go well with you. 
So Jeremiah, I think, is intimately aware that more is at stake here than just the city of Jerusalem. The covenant itself is hanging in the balance, and he's channeling the language of the covenant toward the king, hoping that he will see reason and make the right choice. The other alternative is to hold out and die. His household will be taken from him. And we read uh, in these prophecies and in the poetic language that's used here in the figurative language that there are some very dark implications to his household being taken away from him by the Babylonians. He'll also be abandoned by all of the people who were around him. All of those people who were pulling all that weight and all those strings, they're going to be just fine handing all that responsibility right back onto him as soon as the city falls. He'll be captured and the city will still fall, but not simply as territory captured by an enemy. It'll be burned violently to the ground. Sadly, the king does not commit to the Lord's instructions. As we read at the end of the passage, he orders Jeremiah to keep the whole thing quiet and to tell the officials that he just asked not to be put back into harsh imprisonment. Again, he seems to be covering up so they won't upset the wrong people. He's too afraid. This is what is driving him inside to do what he does. And so it's back to business as usual. He has chosen to allow the city to fall. And he did not choose to open up and surrender. We see that clearly a few verses later when it's written that Jeremiah stays in confinement until the fall of the city. So, uh, maybe I've been channeling some of Jeremiah's harsh attitude or something like that, but um, I need to say now that I don't envy Zedekiah's choice. Like I said, it's not an easy choice for him to make. It's the hardest he's ever had to make. And I, I can relate because I feel like I personally deal with a lot of the same things he seems to. Maybe um, I'm in over my head. I'm not quite sure what I'm doing, and I really don't want to upset these people. Um, but if he had done the right thing, it's interesting to note that it actually would have been, when you think about it, a Christ-like choice. He would have suffered scorn and shame for doing the right thing, the thing that God called him to do. And in so doing, he would have saved many people's lives. It's interesting to think about. You know, similar choices stand before us all the time. Though often it's not as extreme as this. I would say almost all the time it's not as extreme as all this. But we have a covenant relationship with God, like Old Testament Israel did, but it's a new covenant. It's not sealed by the blood of animal sacrifices. But it's sealed by the blood of Jesus Christ. We are his people, he is our God that we are saved by his grace rather than our works. Now, God's love and his saving us for eternity, that's only the beginning. We're meant to go from that wonderful point, and we're meant to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ in his holiness, in his sinlessness, and in his love. We're called to reject sin. We're called to reject sinful actions, which cause destruction in our lives. We're constantly bombarded every day 
many temptations to things which are opposed to God's will, opposed to God's goodness, things that draw us away from him. And though they might not take the form of a little statue, which is ritually worshipped, I'm going to refer to these things this morning as idols because they occupy a place within us that is for the Lord alone. They take his place and we bow down to them. And the Lord is working within us to rid us of such things. You may see it very clearly and strongly in yourself as I start talking about it today. Or you may look at something in your life and think, uh, this is wrong, but it's not, it's not that bad, right? It's not that bad. But our lives in Christ, they're not intended to be a game of how much I can put my toe over the line before God says something about it. See, the story of Israel and Judah, you can see that for how long a thing like that, a game like that can turn out, how long it can go on and what happens. On the other hand, God wants all of what we are. And the answer for us is to choose the Lord's discipline. There is a reason that we are called disciples. Choose the Lord's discipline. Now, obviously, the discipline of the Lord is like an, is an, is an all-time thing. It's an all-the-time. It, it shouldn't be a thing that you turn on or off, whether we identify ourselves as in the wrong about something or not. It, it's a working reality of the Christian life. But I speak of it today. I'm going to speak of it today the same way that, that the passage speaks to it, that of confronting sinful things and turning to the Lord. This is not exhaustive. Instead, it's, it's some of the truths which seem to be coming out of this passage concerning the discipline of the Lord and how we can apply it to our lives. And the first thing that I see coming out of the passage is that we have to identify each one. We have to identify for ourselves the vice. What's the vice that you're, that you're identifying for yourself? This is the behavior itself. It's the outer layer of an issue. It's a simple question, so I don't have to take much time on it. But really, what is it that's causing you to drift from the Lord? I know I'm saying this generally because we're all so different. We're, we're all unique. We all have our, our, our own struggles. But if you're like me, then there's, there's something in you that has the tendency to draw you away from God. Something. Whether you rob banks in your spare time or you spend too much time on your phone. From A to Z there, kind of. For Zedekiah, the thing that we saw was, for him, this was his thing, it was a disregard for the well-being of the city. That's what happened to him. In light of Jeremiah's message, God had a message for him. But he chose to drop the ball on the issue. He chose to do that. So identifying that vice, that outward thing, is very important. But, there, but it goes a little deeper. There's more to it. And the next thing I would say, as I referenced just a few minutes ago, would be to identify your idol. I call it identifying the idol because the individual sins that can come out of us, they're symptomatic. They're symptomatic of something deeper. They're symptoms of, like, sin with, like, a capital S, which sits within us. In Zedekiah's case, it looks like what happened was that he was a fearful person. He told Jeremiah as much. He said he was afraid. He bore it all out right in front of Jeremiah. He was a fearful person. 
He let fear be in the driver's seat. And that fear was of being the person to blame, fear of defectors, fear of his officials. It was given the central place in his heart rather than God as his Lord. And what the Lord wants in this is honesty. You go deeper than identifying the bad thing you do. But you think about, what's the reason? Why is it that I do this thing? The thing sitting in your core that leads you to do that. The thing that you're bowing down to instead of God. Maybe it's fear. Maybe it's greed. Maybe it's insecurity. Deep anger problems. Or maybe it's deep hurts that you've experienced in your life and in your past. But when those outer symptoms... And the inner causes, when they're sought and they're understood by you, that is a major step forward because you're not fighting blindly. Knowledge is power, as the saying goes. The Lord knows. Of course he knows. And he wants you to know. So that he's not working against you, but that he's working alongside you and that you're working alongside him. And when you're at that point, the thing that I would concentrate on next that I think comes out of the passage is we must lean on the Lord's help. I've talked about things that I need to identify, things that I need to understand, things that I need to think about. But I have to lean on the Lord's help too, just as Zedekiah should have leaned on the Lord's help through the word that Jeremiah was giving to him. This is more than moral support here, right? I mean, if you're a follower of Christ, if you are in Christ, then the Holy Spirit is your constant companion. Divine power and help are given to us. Lean on divine power. The writer of the letter of the Hebrews, to the Hebrews, excuse me, tells us to boldly approach the throne of grace so that we might receive mercy and help in our time of need. And so if you're afraid of coming to the Lord as we've been talking about all this, if you're afraid of coming to the Lord for any reason, I would encourage you to meditate on that passage as you see up there on the screen, Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. It's been a monumental passage in my life. Receive mercy in time of need. And speaking of mercy, remember that you're not receiving the Lord's help so that you can work your way back into good standing with him or something like that. We approach the Lord for forgiveness and cleansing because he offers it in the midst of our failure. He still offers it. His mercies are new every morning and he doesn't hold grudges. So I want you to be encouraged by that and I want you to lean on divine mercy. Also be encouraged by divine provision. Lean on divine provision. Simply put, as we sang about, and as Michelle prayed about, simply put, you are not alone. The thing about sin, and the thing about our adversary, the devil, is a strategy of his to make you think that you are alone. That there is no one to help you. You are isolated, and there is no hope. But the Lord, rather, he did his work on the cross because You cannot defeat sin by yourself. But he did it for you. And he's with you, and so you're not alone. If you're in Christ, like I said a moment ago, the Holy Spirit is your companion. It goes further out to your fellow believers, the body of Christ. 
You have your fellow believers. You have ways to find support. And I say this especially, I mean, I know I'm talking about stuff like being on your phone too much and stuff like that, but I say this especially if you've got a really serious problem that you're dealing with. I don't want to minimize that. You will need help. And God places other people or programs or resources into our lives. And it's a mark of his goodness in this world. So we lean on the Lord in many different ways, and we must. And lastly, um, I say that I'm drawing things out of the passage, but unfortunately, I draw this one out of the passage because it's not what Zedekiah chose. The last thing I want to bring to this is after identifying the vice, identifying your idol, and after choosing to lean on the Lord's help, lean into him, is to walk in newness of life. Part of this in saying walk is the fact that living free of sin and living one's life in Christ, it's a matter of the long road, right? Every day, one day at a time, living toward God, daily practice of how we live to God. Sometimes I've experienced victory over something that was, that was within me, something sinful. I've experienced victory over it, and then I feel great, but as soon as I feel challenged by it again, I feel discouraged. But I really shouldn't. I, that's just impatience on my part. I ought not to feel discouraged because we engage daily in battle against temptation. In each failure we experience in that struggle, God doesn't intend it to be something that knocks us back to square one. It's an opportunity to get back up in his grace and keep going. And as I say walk in newness of life, I also want to highlight the fact that as we experience that victory in the Lord over sin, over temptation, the right choice becomes easier and more natural over time. Just like bad choices compounded over time, they become more natural too. So too does doing right and choosing right in the Lord's power. It's a matter of rhythm and habit, and it's powered by the Spirit. And in saying walking in newness of life, I also mean walking with a confidence in God's ability to do in your life what he says he'll do. Walking in confidence. A life of Christian discipline, it does not consist of anxiety in order to scrape by as you try to do the right thing. This is work, of course. This is a life of work but it is more so a life of freedom and trust in God's goodness. So as I draw to a close today, um, if you find yourself dealing with sin in your life, suffering through sin, I have no intention of making this a big guilt trip upon anybody. I hope I haven't made it seem that way. That's really the place of the Holy Spirit, just like Jesus said, to convict us all of sin. I also don't want uh, to in any way minimize the struggles that you face, as I said a moment ago, especially if they're serious, major struggles. Facing our issues, uh, be they light or be they serious, is not easy. And so I don't intend to make... It sound overly easy by giving you four bullet points. I get that. 
what I really want to offer is comfort. If all of this is striking you in a certain way this morning, I want to offer comfort because the Lord is working in your life. And he's doing it so that it may go well for you. His desire is for you. He loves us all enough that he didn't leave us the way that he found us. And he doesn't leave us the way that he found us. It's by the blood of Jesus Christ. It's by the power of the Holy Spirit that our Father is reconciling the world to himself. And he calls upon us this morning to open up the gates, to surrender the cities we've built around ourselves, and to allow him to transform us. It would be a tragedy for us to choose otherwise. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, it is your grace, it is your love, it is your longing and your transforming power which has called us all here today in the first place. It's what called us toward yourself, called us into fellowship with one another as the body of Christ, calls us forward, calls us into salvation and into your kingdom and calls us into transformation and newness of life. We want to make the right choice. We want to make the choice that is not the choice of turning inward, but we want to make the choice of saying yes to your kingdom. And so we ask your power this morning. We ask your help, your provision. We ask your power to flow into every heart here. And for our spirits to be renewed. And for your Holy Spirit to fill us to overflowing. So that we might walk in newness of life. Just as you have called us in Jesus Christ. What a glorious promise this is. What glorious freedom. And we want it. And we know you want it. So we choose to connect to you. We choose to lean on you. We give you our praise. We give you our thanks. We give you our hope. We place it in you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.